Welcome to the 34th episode of It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast where we discuss murders that intrigue us. I'm Mercedes. And I am Cindy. Thank you for listening to last week's episode on Gary Heidnick, the sicko who inspired the Buffalo Bill character in Silence of the Lambs. Our show is often horrifying and graphic, and we will use offensive language. So if you have kids, put them away for a while and join us for a murder. Also, we are passionate and always have been about true crime, but we must warn you that sometimes we will make jokes and laugh during our podcast. Do you want to learn more about us? Visit our website at It Wasn't me truecrime.com to find links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. If you like what you hear and you'd like to help us out, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a five-star rating along with a comment. Also, please recommend our podcast to your friends. The more the merrier. Hey, Cindy, how's it going this week? It's going really well. How's your week going? Um, You know, just one week, one day, running into the other. <laughs> I don't really feel like any huge, you know, we haven't been able to go out on the water because of the storms and whatnot. So. Yes, yes. I, um, you know, I'm not really even sure what day it is so, most days. Yeah, me neither. Me neither. <laughs> Which I'm okay with that, really. Honestly, I am. Me too. Yeah. So, um, well, this week's murder was a little bit hard for me just so you know oh no it's kind of like um you know like last the last one i did was brian l rooney and that was and you did maxim gelman and then it just seems like we've been doing a lot of sexual assault murders lately Mm -hmm. so once i finish with this one i'm taking a break from sexual assault for a while i really am tired of uh it's just bringing me down like the same thing i mean it right yeah i mean i um (laughs) It just seems like that is a method of murder for women mm-hmm. everywhere, right? It is. So, I mean, it's it's uh, almost like, oh, well, this person was murdered. They weren't just murdered. They were murdered. They were sexually assaulted or, you know, or sexually assaulted. Tortured. Then murdered, and, tortured, yeah. Right. So, I mean, it is. It's emotionally draining, and I've been kind of wanting to find something different as well. And I think yeah. next week is definitely... Yeah, it's definitely different. My next one is different too. I'm, I'm, I'm really still. It's still horrifying, but you can get excited about murders, and I'm, I'm a little bit more excited because there is no sexual assault in it. And right. I'm like, I'm, I'm just ready to, to put that behind me for a little while. So. I am too. And mine is a little. And well, and sexuality does come up in my case next week, but it's not what you think. Right. Okay. So. I'm super intrigued by that. Yeah. I'm gonna go ahead and just warn you that this one. This one definitely got to me. It is a little bit horrifying. So I want to just put that out there now. You can't handle that. Right. And, you know, I want to blog about about it, like things that I've learned about rapists and rape in general. And I just can't like I just want to sweep it away. I don't want to deal with it for a while. So after after this week, I'm going to try to be a little bit more a little bit more creative and finding, you know, sounds like different types of murder. Right. Right. All right. So are you ready? I'm ready. Give it to me. All right. Well, on Wednesday, August 5th, 1992, at around 1235 a.m., Joan Burghardt, who's a 29-year-old nurse's aide, called the Allentown, Pennsylvania Police Department to report a burglary to her apartment. She lived in a first floor apartment, you know, one bedroom, one bath, typical small apartment on the bottom floor. Okay. Wait, haven't we been to, have we been to Allentown before? 
No, you did last week. You did Hi Nick, who was Hi. somewhere in Pennsylvania, but not Allentown. So where was the um the young lady, the lunchbox murder? Or that was in lunch- New Jersey. Yeah. Okay, I don't know why the lunch break murder. Yeah, yes, okay, that was okay. in um, that was your girl from New Jersey. Okay, okay. I don't know why Allentown jumped out. But you know what? I I mean, I don't know how far away. Like, my brother lives in New Jersey, and he, like, they are uh, Pittsburgh fans. So, it's not that far. Okay. It's not that far. Maybe I've correlated, like, the distance. Like, when they fly, they drive to Pitts. I think they drive to Pennsylvania somewhere to go for the airport. Okay. So, yeah. I could be wrong. Please, correct me, brother, if I'm wrong. (laughs) All right. So, she had left around 11 p.m. to to give a friend a ride. So, she was gone about an hour and a half. And she said that when she left, she turned her fan on. She locked her screen sliding door, but Mm -hmm. left her patio door open. So, she's, like, it's in the summer in Pennsylvania, and it's hot. So, she left that open. She noticed immediately that when she came home that the fan was turned off. Her patio door was closed. And she noticed that one of her drawers was slightly open. She looked I in there. I would have immediately left. <laughs> right? <laughs> she, um. I mean, as soon as I noticed that my, my door was closed, I would have been the fuck out right? of there. Sorry. She wasn't <laughs> sure. You know, she's doubting herself. But nope, then nope, she nope. realized that there was money missing out of a, ba- a bank bag she kept in her drawer. Nope. I'm she out. called 911 immediately. The police show up. They noticed a couple of things when they walked in. That her patio door, her, her, uh. Her screen door had been cut, like right by the locking mechanisms, as if somebody had uh, slip his hand slip, in. Slip his hand in. Oh. But if the door was already open, I guess just to unlock the screen door. It. She also again reported that the forty or fifty dollars that was missing. And she said, other than that, her apartment seemed relatively undisturbed. They took a report and they advised her to keep her doors locked when she leaves. They should have advised her to leave. Right. To, is there somewhere else you can stay tonight? There was no one else in the apartment, but, you know, it oh. kind of freaked her out. She knew immediately and called the police. Well, four days later at 1130 a.m., this is Sunday, August 8th, 1992, the Allentown Police Department, get they get another call regarding Burghardt's apartment. Only this time it's her neighbor. Her neighbor's calling and said that the music has been blaring from my neighbor's house for three days and three nights. And she is not responding to the doorbell. She's not, I'm banging on her wall. I'm banging on her door and no one's answering and the music will not go down. They also said that the screen was off the front window. It had been for three days and three nights. Oh, and also um, on one of those nights, it sounded like she was getting beaten because it was like screaming and someone was hitting the walls. They didn't call the police. They didn't then? call the police then. Three days and three nights later, they decided to call the police. Well, that's like that story that happened here with that guy. There was a guy who was at a party and he was acting crazy. And they tied in like, so the homeowner who was oh, on the yeah, party. in the shed, right? Yeah, they tied him up in the backyard. And for like two or three days, he was out there screaming, help me, help me. And the neighbor was like, when he finally, the guy died and the police come, the neighbor's like, oh, yeah, we thought we heard someone screaming out there for help. Right. So one time we lived in an apartment. It wasn't on the first floor. It was similar to this. My son was... My oldest son was, he was probably eight or nine, and my husband was over. We weren't married at the time. We were, you know, still kind of. We were, you yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> so, and we would always wrestle. Like, my husband's a wrestler, and my, yeah. my oldest son, he, he always liked to wrestle. And so we're wrestling. We're having a good time. We're laughing. We're screaming. Well, my neighbors call the police. Oh, my god! Rightfully so, because, I mean, I appreciate you that. Know. You never know. Yeah. And the police came. And do you know that they, when they get a, a like, a call for what seemingly a domestic, domestic dispute or yeah. they were they want to come in yes they're like man we can't leave until we come in just to verify everything's okay 
and they were questioning my son. They were questioning me. They were making sure that my husband wasn't, you know, beating us. So right. because yeah. I mean, you're, li- I mean, you're like, <laughs> of course, oh. it was probably the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but I mean, it's legitimate because right? they deal with that kind of shit all the time. Yes, and I appreciate that my neighbor called the police. Yeah, even though it was unwarranted, right. which is might be why the neighbors like, oh yeah, they're just having rowdy sex in there or something. But Maybe. still, the I mean, I think I would have called the police sooner. Um, uh, I would have called the police definitely after 24 hours of music, well, or probably four hours. Well, of music. and you know, banging <laughs> and screaming. Uh, I'm probably just would have called 911. Just yeah, hey, just, just just in case. In case. Anyway, when police arrived, they immediately noticed that the front window was open and the screen was on the ground below the window. It was just like tossed out. They also noticed that another window towards the back of the apartment was slightly ajar. When they made it inside the house. They realized that it was not a radio full blast. It was a television on full volume. Both the front and the back patio doors were locked when they entered. And when they walked into the living room, they found her Burghardt dead lying on her stomach. Mm. Blood saturated the couch, the walls, and the floor. And there's blood everywhere. She had been beaten to death. So she was dressed for bed. She was wearing a t-shirt and a pair of jockey shorts, which, by the way, are really just boxers for women. Her shorts were ripped at the crotch and they were pulled up, making her nude from the waist down. They did find some clothes nearby. A pair of black shorts was, was stained with both blood and semen. There was also a peach shirt on the floor nearby that had bloody swipe marks on it as if it was used to clean a weapon. Well, it was 92, so DNA really wasn't a thing then. Well, DNA was a thing. But it was not. It's not. It's def- It was definitely not. The technology is not as advanced as it is today. And but they still could determine tech, uh, DNA through like blood and semen and hair. Right. And stuff. But I think it was still almost considered like voodoo, like voodoo science. And really with OJ is when people started to kind of take DNA more seriously, like with that trial. Right. I guess because it was OJ. Well, that was only a couple years later. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. That's what I'm, I'm trying to think of. Like, so he probably mm-hmm. wiped off his weapon or the semen, like leaving all that stuff behind, not thinking that, well, yes, how am I going to catch true. me? true. They, they, yeah. Criminals weren't as savvy then as far as hiding their DNA. Yeah. It didn't matter to them as much. Yeah, ask the Golden yeah. State Killer. <laughs> Burkhart's autopsy revealed that she had been sexually assaulted and bludgeoned to death by 37 individual blunt force injuries to her scalp causing extensive skull fractures and brain damage they determined that the weapon was a circular cylindrical instrument and i'm picturing like a police baton have you ever seen one of those yeah so we used to have one at the pizza shop and i don't like know the extendable one yes or the old school one well the one i'm that we had was the extendable one and i mean you're talking that is heavy and lethal yeah. i'm like uh-huh. picturing like an old school like baton yes do you want to the ones that didn't they like but the their, cops would carry yeah yeah I'm, mm-hmm. I'm picturing like someone like swinging around yeah, yeah <laughs> definitely yeah that's what i'm picturing it never said exactly what the weapon was but whatever it was it created such forceful deliberate blows that her hair was embedded between her the fractures of her skull holy so shit hair and um and broken skull bits all in the cracks and whatnot blood spattering at the crime scene and it was everywhere indicated that her attacker was around five feet ten inches this is important because later on he's almost five feet ten inches a little bit more than five feet nine inches so that works as wow. far as that you yeah. know determining the height through blood spatter that, that's just amazing that to is me. amazing to me. chaz did a chaz did a blood spatter 
science fair project before where we nice. would drop water balloons from certain distances and throw it against the wall and we would measure the blood spatter it was really fun well, I'm making that was my notes. idea <laughs> that's a good one Police had absolutely no witnesses or leads, but they did have a height and they actually had some DNA. They also stated that they were unsure if the previous break in the few days before was related. Oh, come on. It was. Well, I mean, they're 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 speculating that it was, but they have no evidence proving that it was. I understand. Investigators continue to interview all of her friends and family and co-workers. They were also investigating every avenue and interviewing several people, but they didn't have like a particular suspect in mind i do want to point out that um there was a mental health hospital okay right across the street from her apartment all right which could or could not mean anything we're not exactly exactly but that is what people are starting to think oh i wonder if it was somebody who well i'll talk about it in in a few minutes depending on the mental health facility right then you know, I mean, we kind of have one here. Well, this one then... actually, like, had a criminal floor. And, and oh, so, okay. I mean, we have one of those here, too, at the same facility you're talking about. It's just... Yes. Now, but Bert, it's not, like, yeah. the one at where the one that is freaking flew over the cuckoo's nest. Right. That one is, like, modeled after. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Burkhart's parents and co-workers talked openly of her, claiming that she had no enemies. Everybody loved her. Her mother said that her daughter was a generous, caring, wonderful, loving person who had many personal struggles, but proved she proved over and over again that she was a fighter, and her passing was a great loss to her family. Now, sadly, when she uh, she did struggle for years with mental illness caused by an earlier violent trauma. When she was 10, walking to a pool that was nearby in July, she was sexually assaulted at knife point by a stranger. So she had PTSD, is what I'm guessing most likely her issues were. PTSD, right? I mean, what trauma... From an incident that was very similar, a violent attack well, when she I was just sure 10. Well, I sure shit wouldn't have been staying in my apartment if that had happened to me. And leaving was... the door open. I mean, here we are victim, victim blaming. And, no, you know, no, like, no. Definitely not victim blaming. You know, like, I can't even go to sleep. If I if I think that my doors are unlocked or my windows are unlocked, I have to get I can't until no. I go back through. And then I have somebody else go back through and make sure the yeah. doors are locked. Well, you know that shit doesn't right. happen at my right. house. The girl at the time, she was hysterical immediately after the incident and she was fearful that she had committed a sin. Oh, so her baby. parents, her parents called a priest and they, you know, she went through a lot of therapy there. And the priest is trying to explain to her, you know, like Catholic upbringing is that shame. Burkhart, she, she yeah. wasn't really out of it where she could even, not that I, I think that you can ever understand that sort of trauma, but she's 10. Right. So she's really not able to right. process that. Yeah. And I then mean, you've got that Catholic upbringing, which tells you, you know, you want to keep yourself pure. Yeah. You know, that uh, just makes you feel even I mean, worse. I don't know as a 40 something year old, if I can mm-hmm. process it very well, but I, I could process it a hell of a lot better than a 10 year old, I would think. Right. Right. And so she had talked about suicide often like it was something that from 10 years old up to the age of 29 when she was murdered like oh she she constantly battled that she was in and out of um therapy and rehab and I, I'm, I'm not talking about drug rehab i didn't see anything where she was on drugs but she did have issues she had in treatment and, and like, she maybe did have a little bit of drug and alcohol but that was not treatment is what I'm yes to say. yes thank you she had been in and out of the hospital for treatment in the months preceding her her murder i just I can't imagine her terror 
when she realized that someone was in her house. No. Like, that is reliving it even, even, you know, the first time, even worse. See, I think I would probably be that person that, like, beat the shit out of everybody that came within, like, three feet of me. Right. Just kind of scrappy. And, I'd probably and, end up in jail because yeah. I'd beat everybody up. I'm like, they came within three feet of me. Police continued their investigation into Joan Burghardt's murder as the months went by, but they still had no... They didn't, well, they actually had a suspect, but that suspect was cleared with when the DNA results came back as negative. They're still, they're still investigating kind of cold leads or whatnot. When 10 months later on June 19th, 1993, only about one block or one minute drive from where Joan Burghardt was murdered, the Allentown police received another call. This time it was from a resident in the neighborhood concerned about the paper girl. 15-year-old Charlotte Schmoyer. The caller said that the paper girl hadn't hit his paper. And I've read where the caller was a man. And then I read where it was a woman. So I just, I don't know if it was a man or woman who called. But the caller, whoever it was, said that the paper had not been delivered. And the paper girl never delivered her papers late. She was super reliable. But not only that, more disturbing was that her newspaper cart just sitting in front of my neighbor's house. It's just sitting out there. It's been sitting there for 30 minutes. I think and, I probably would have led with that on the 911 call. Right? I didn't get my paper. <laughs> yeah. My paper's late. Anyway, the caller said that that newspaper card had been sitting there for th- about 30 minutes, and the neighbor next to that neighbor had a paper, but no one else had papers from that point forward. The caller insisted something has to be wrong. This girl is not like this. Send somebody over right away. So the police arrive. They quickly determined that someone had abducted the 15-year-old girl. They noticed that her newspaper cart was still filled halfway with newspapers. And one newspaper was dropped on the ground a few feet from the cart. It was like she was she had a newspaper in her hand and then was uh, um, attacked taken. or taken. Oh and so God. she dropped it. Further away from the cart in a grassy area between two homes... Police noticed a set of headphones and a Walkman, and they weren't connected. It's like they were kind of thrown a few feet mm-hmm. apart. They noticed that on the Walkman, it had a chevron paint uh, pattern on it, like somebody had stepped on it with a shoe. They also noticed that there were finger streaks on window panes of a nearby garage. Like, like oh, wow. she was, like they determined, yes, that they would determine those were her fingerprints and that she was trying to get away from her abductor. This is so scary because in 92, 93, we still like went door to door trying to sell candy, candy and, candy and magazines right. or whatever for fundraising. Right? Yes. Yeah, I can't believe our parents let us do that shit. A manhunt to find the 15-year-old girl began and then, you know, it was all day. Later that day, in a heavily wooded area near the reservoir, police found a bloody trail that led them directly to Schmoyer's body, which had been buried under some logs. <sighs> Bless her heart. She was kind of like behind an elementary school. So there was an elementary school and then the reservoir, which is um, like a man-made lake mm-hmm. is what I'm imagining. And there's a lot of woods and stuff there. Like, um, what are they? Uh, it was, it's like a state park or a, a it was a park. Like they had city employees that worked there. Right. But I know like it, um, like you have to have so much runoff areas like yeah. around schools yeah. and stuff. What are those called? Um, uh, retention know. ponds. Yeah, but that's kind of that's like, in Florida. I don't know if that's I, yeah, everywhere. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> right. that, that's what I picture anyway. So she uh, she was wearing a sweatshirt. It was slashed up and shoved up, and her pants and panties were down around her knees. She had a large gaping wound to her throat with some separate stab wounds beneath the gash. Her autopsy later revealed that she suffered twenty two stab wounds, sixteen of those in her back. This person so like, is sick. Uh, absolute. 
depraved individual. And I just, it was so hard for me. Like I, I mean, seriously, this one got to me, honestly. Her, her right cheek had a pattern bruise, just like the pattern that was found on her Sony Walkman, the chevron pattern from the bottom of his shoe. Two of her wounds went up to the hilt. So was, they determined it's a four inch single edged knife. And then there was all kinds of evidence on her body. It was from blood to semen to head, body, and pubic hairs. And they determined that a lot of that blood and those hairs were not hers. There are also two witnesses. James Stingle, who's an, an Allentown City employee who worked at the reservoir, re reported that he parked a few spaces down from a blue four-door sedan with front-end damage. And it was there when he arrived at the reservoir around 625. At first, he said it was a Dodge, but then, um, and this is going to come up in appeal later, they hypnotized him and he's like, no, no, it was a four tempo. Okay. So they determined the description of the car. And then another witness came forward saying that, yeah, right around 640 AM, I saw this figure coming out of the woods acting very strangely. There wasn't a huge description of them that they knew it was a white man with, you know, that which they already knew through DNA evidence right. with Burghardt. But they haven't connected the two yet. Okay, but, so they just think it's two separate murders. But there have been other... I mean, obviously it's two separate murders, right, you know what I mean? Two right. separate people. Two separate people, yeah. right? Yes. So they have a description. Now, they have more DNA. They have a make and model of a car, but they still have no real suspect. The newspaper that Charlotte delivered papers for was called The Morning Call, and they offered a $10,000 reward to anyone who could provide information leading to the conviction of the murderer. Wow. I'm not sure if they ever paid out on that, honestly. The paper also took steps to protect their other minor employees. So Good. they had a lot of kids delivering papers. They offered adult escorts. A lot of parents escorted them. They gave each of all their paper delivery people a whistle, which could have helped if she had a whistle. Yeah. But then they instituted a policy that no longer could you wear your headphones and have a Walkman. Can't listen to music. And to me, they're saying that if Shmoyer hadn't been wearing her headphones, she could have avoided her attacker and gotten away. Maybe not uh, totally avoided it. I mean, I get I get where they're going because then she might not have been easily snuck up right. on. Right. She would not have been unaware that someone was behind but, her or whatever. Uh, could you imagine doing that job? But to me, it's almost like victim blaming the way that they a worded little. it. Yeah. Now, the police yeah. came out. They came out with kind of a rebuttal because I think the police were a little bit offended by it, too. And they said, listen, it's not clear she was even wearing those in the first place. We don't know if she actually had them on. People were devastated by the loss of the sweet girl. This girl was on the track and swim team. She was in the school band. Her mom said, oh, that's my best friend. She was described as a hardworking girl who struggled academically, but she was active in school and church and at home. She was also a huge help around the house. So, I mean, her mom was devastated. Oh, I can't imagine. People in the East Allentown neighborhood were terrified. Like, this is all in the same neighborhood. Um, people felt safe there. They yeah. didn't lock their doors at night. You know, it was just a really nice little Probably neighborhood didn't experience a lot of murders first off right and then to have two in a year would you said it was like a year it was 10 months later i believe yeah, is what so I said. not yes. even a year mm -hmm. you know people were like well this shit just happened and now it's happening again what's going on the world's going crazy i mean we know how that is right so people are terrified she was abducted only one minute away from burghardt's apartment was there a predator prowling amongst them they're all freaking out now they lock their doors they check their windows they wouldn't allow their allow their kids outside alone nope. most of them were tightly locked inside by dusk 
even in school and parents were giving stranger danger lessons to children of all ages like don't walk alone don't take shortcuts through the woods don't go through isolated areas don't talk to strangers tell an adult if you see suspicious behavior i mean that's just our growing up our life you know i mean right leaving the house and soon as you could and you didn't come back home until the lights were on right like literally my mother whenever she would mop the floor she'd lock us out yeah I never, like, I didn't want my kids to go outside at all. No, I don't even, now I'm like, no, there's snakes out there, you know, and, and I know that they need to go outside and we tell them to go outside and, you know, but that's something I worried about when they were little. I was more worried about the human snakes. <laughs> well, those two, but, you know, I mean. If- People in the neighborhood, like I said, rumors circulated that maybe the killer was one of the patients at the Allentown State Hospital. That was a mental hospital right across from Burghardt's apartment. Some also believe that the killer could have been a patient with mental health issues and was somehow sneaking out of the hospital and prowling their neighborhood. But police, I mean, police were looking at connections between the two murders, but they actually had no evidence yet. When they did realize that the DNA was the same, they did not release that to the press. That was never released to the press. Well, and there are some things that they need to keep. Yes. And lots of people don't really, like, get that, that they can't release all the information because that's how they catch their right the bad guy right you know they can't and right. then when someone says well i you know they confess or they you know then they start prying for information like that but i mean and to go back on the mental hospital you know some of those people have been like well that's not fair they're just assuming that it's us but i mean that's a legitimate i mean they have to right look into that. i mean the police the police said it's we don't think that's it they they did come out and say we don't think that's it but we are looking at every avenue yeah they have yeah. to Eight months later, after Schmoyer's uh, abduction, on June 28th, 1993, which is only five blocks from the other two murders, 38-year-old Denise Sam Kelly was home alone sleeping. I'm thinking this is pretty early in the morning, like 1.30 a.m. to 3.30. I can't remember the exact time. Okay. She hears a noise in her walk-in closet, and she wakes oh. up. So I'm thinking she's a very light sleeper. She's hearing someone moving around. She's like, okay, my husband's out of town. I believe his name is John, but I can't remember. She knew that she wasn't imagining the noises. So she jumps out of her bed and she starts running out of the bedroom. She's making it to her front door when she's grabbed from behind. Oh my God. She's thrown on the ground and she starts fighting. She's able to get away and she runs outside. She, um, she runs outside and then she's grabbed again and she's thrown on the ground in front of her house. Her attacker sat on top of her, holding her down with his knees. When she began fighting him, he pushed her down on her, he pushed down on her mouth and he choked her. He then punched her with all his might four times oh. in the face. She punched and flailed and she bit the fuck out of his upper right arm. Good for her. She said that she bit so hard it hurt her jaw. So they knew, the police knew this person's going to have a tell because yeah. there's going to be a mark. And he right? would probably, because like a human bite mark is nasty. Right. It so doesn't it heal. Like easily right. easily get infected. And <sighs> Okay. Well, this, <laughs> she's fighting. She bit his arm. He was raping her oh, on her, fr- in her front yard, on the front walk. And when he finished... He got up like like the neighbors are hearing something like her neighbor, her neighbors start the lights start turning on. So he jumps up. He goes back into Sam Kelly's house and runs out of her back door. So it's to me, it seemed like he had an escape plan that he was sticking to. When police arrived, the neighbor called police. And when they arrived, they found Sam Kelly severely beaten about her head. She had strangulation marks on her neck with a slash on her neck. (gasps) They found a large butcher knife inside of her house that was wrapped in a napkin outside of her bathroom door. Oh, my God. So what I'm guessing is that when he when she ran and he grabbed her by the bathroom and threw her on the ground, he dropped the knife. Mm-hmm. She's I mean, she could have been killed 
right if there. he had the knife, right? Yeah. It's, it's like he didn't account for that she might fight back and right. hear him and, like, haul ass. He might, he might have, like, you know, made a noise that he didn't mean to or knocked right. into something. And, oh, yes. Jesus yeah. loves me. She was freaking out, of course. Her uh, husband yeah. comes back, and they they go out of town for a few days. They leave town. We move. That's, yeah. what, that's what happens. Yeah, they didn't move. So two weeks later, on July 14th in 1993, another 911 call comes in from another East Allentown home reporting a murder. And this one's about four miles away from the other murders. These people are just being terrorized. Aren't they? 47-year-old Jessica Jean Fortney was found dead in her bedroom in a home that she shared with her family. Ugh. She was half naked. Her shorts and panties were pulled completely off one leg, but were about mid-thigh on her other leg. Her face was swollen and black. They said that she had dried blood all over all over her entire face. Mm. Eyes, nose, nostrils, ears. She had blood everywhere. Aww. There was blood spatter on the wall behind the sofa and on the lampshade. So I'm guessing it started in one room and moved to another. The first floor window was open. Fortney died as a result of manual strangulation and blunt force trauma. There were more than 50 injury patterns consistent with being punched to death. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine. So all of these girls and the, the Schmoyer and Burkhardt and Sam Callie and now Fortney have been beaten in their face with they yeah, they determined this has a extreme hatred for women definitely and he was wearing a ring that was evident by oh. the the mark yes yeah, so he he was beating her with um he it, also the blood spatters show that he held her down with his knees as he beat her and they're noticing that it's the same mo mm-hmm. every murder so they're they're grabbed they're tackled to the ground they're held down with their knees as determined by the blood spatter they're beaten to death. They're strangled. And in one case, their throats are... Sl- actually, mm. in a couple, their throats are slashed. Blood spatter evidence show... Oh, I already said that. Okay. So, she, it was, she had been raped. There was DNA from the semen that was found. One paramedic, Gene Voss, who responded to the 911 call at, at trial, he testified that it was the most brutal and gruesome scene that he had ever responded to. And he had like 19 years on, on oh, the force. Wow. This also was a, a bone of contention for appeal later on because they're saying that was inflammatory. You know, him saying, oh, it's the worst crime scene I ever came on. But they, they allowed it still. Okay. In addition, police had a witness. The killer's granddaughter was in the house. The eight-year-old girl could give police a description. Wait, so the killer's granddaughter? No, no, no. The one who was killed. The kill. Oh, did I say the killer's granddaughter? Okay, sorry killer didn't have a granddaughter jean fortney who was murdered her granddaughter was oh my god so her grandbaby her granddaughter her granddaughter witnessed part of it and then went and hid oh good like like they never knew that like the killer never knew that she was in the house oh thank god because she would probably be dead too yes and police were busy investigating the latest murder of fortney when four days later denise sam kelly remember her the one who got away and was raped in her front yard yes they called 911 at about 4 o'clock in the morning. Oh, no. Did he come back? Did yes. he get rid of her? They reported <gasps> that they that they had been asleep at 4 a.m. And I'm imagining that she is not sleeping much because no. she hears a noise in her backyard. Yeah, yeah. And she starts freaking out. And then all of a sudden, her alarm, they had, they had installed a new security alarm. Damn right. She heard somebody at the back door then turning the knob, and then the alarm went off. That chased the person off. And she and her husband... Both agreed. They called the police, and and they all agreed that the the attacker is probably going to come back. Oh, goodbye. We're moving. So what they decide to do is, and this woman, this <gasps> woman, they they do a thing. Sh- they do. They decide that every night, the police are going to spend the night in her in the same Kelly's house. 
She is brave. She is brave. She actually did an interview with Ladies Home Journal, which is no longer published because I looked for the article and I was not paying that amount of money to look to at the archives. It, yeah. But that was another uh, appeal that came up is that, you know, that that tainted the jury pool because they read this article by that she had it was called it was called so i survived i survived my rape attack or something like now that they have tv shows like yes that. I mean, yes wow well good for her to take that and do try you to know do it's like instead of it. chasing me out of my house why should i run yeah. uh, this is my my place you keep and to me wow. that just shows That's, such courage oh, absolutely. absolute courage courage yes now, that diligence paid off within a little bit more than two weeks. At 1.25 a.m. on July 31st, 1993, Officer Lewis was the one on duty at the Sam Cali residence. He notices, well, first he hears a noise. It sounds like somebody's trying to open the doors. Then he notices it's someone at the front window. He sees a silhouette through the front window. And then he sees the fingertips of a black gloved hand take the screen off oh. and you know he's not going to draw attention to himself yet because we want this man to come in the house you know or he's woman. scared too i mean i don't he's an officer but okay. they don't deal with this i mean they deal right. with a lot of shit don't get me wrong but they don't deal with this kind of shit right all the time right i mean i, I mean he you know he's probably like i mean he could have been like hell yeah here we go well he or, allowed this person to raise the window up he saw he saw the uh, the head of someone coming in the window then the body climbs <laughs> through and the whole body is in the room and Officer Lewis announces himself. And then there's a shootout. A shootout ensued. So the intruder Kate was able to crash through the kitchen and make an escape, but it was obvious that he was shot because there was oh, a good. blood trail going into the kitchen. Okay. Good job, Officer Lewis. Uh, good job, Officer Lewis. Now, Officer Lewis didn't give chase. He wanted to make sure that, you know, somebody hadn't come in through the back window. He went and checked on the Sam Callies. Yeah. Call for backup. He didn't chase. Good. Because you never yeah. know. He didn't have to, though, because at 3 o'clock, between 3 and 3.30 that morning, he's called to go to the local hospital because someone has mm -hmm. come in with gunshot wounds, one to each arm and one to each leg. He probably had a bite mark, too, huh? Oh, no, that was a little while Well, later. he did. He was bleeding in both his arms and both his legs, and he had a healing scar of a bite mark that was obviously a few weeks old on his upper right arm. Loser. And when someone comes in like that, they, like, lock down the hospitals and stuff, which I didn't know they did. When they bring shooting victims into hospitals, they lock the hospitals down. In case it's, like, a retaliation. Yes. Yeah. I did not know that. I, until, I have read that before. Until it happened at mm -hmm. one of our local hospitals. Actually, I think they locked both hospitals down because... Just in case. Yeah. Huh. I had no idea. I mean, it makes sense, but they don't show that on ER. Nope. <laughs> All right. Lewis positively identified the man as the intruder. And Denise Sam Kelly also positively identified him as the man who had raped her. The intruder turned out to be 18-year-old Harvey Miguel Robinson. 18. 18. He was arrested and blood and hair samples were taken for DNA analysis and the, the results were rushed. They came in pretty quickly and the results came back positive. He was involved in the three murders and the attacks on both Denise Sam Cali and they also came back positive to a fifth victim who did not die. So they... So now they're connecting other things that are going on. Holy in crap. What happened to this kid? The fifth victim was five years what? old. Shut the fuck up. Sorry. Robinson supposedly, uh, police oh determined that Robinson didn't intend to rape the five-year-old, but instead int intended to rape and possibly kill 
the five-year-old's mother, but he changed his mind. He's, and I think the police learned this from him. He changed his mind when he saw that the woman was in bed with a boyfriend. Instead, he went into the little girl's room and they, and it was two sisters who shared a room, but only one of the girls was in the bedroom at the time. He raped and strangled the five-year-old, choked her, leaving her for dead. It is believed that he stalked the mother for several days as he did his other victims. They also have connected him, but with no evidence. So they never brought charges on to an incident in 1990 with a 13-year-old girl named Leslie Gerhardt. Which he would have only been 15 then. Right. She was 13 and had a friend staying over for the evening, which the intruder did not realize. And the intruder came in through her bedroom window. He'd removed the screen. He came in he put his knees on her and began beating her with a brick but then the girl the the friend woke up and started screaming and ran to the other room and he got scared off and went back out through the window leslie escaped with a fractured skull and a shattered hand now he was suspected of stalking her on the telephone and in person for weeks before the attack but it was i mean they connected them the two attended elementary school together and leslie is believed to have been his first victim Holy crap. He was never charged for that attempted murder. They never had the, you know, hairs or anything to prove it. But he was, he was the first person they ever thought of. Wow. When they searched his residence, they found a black ski mask and a pair of black gloves under a couch cushion. Several drops of blood and blood-soaked clothing identified as the clothing that he was wearing when he broke into the Sam Cali residence the night that he was shot. Also, there was more blood in the bathroom. So he went home before he went to the hospital, obviously, and tried to fix himself. They found more gloves. There's bloodstained socks. There was a pair of sneakers with that chevron pattern on the bottom. There was also a loaded 380 semi-automatic handgun that was registered to Sam Callie's husband. Oh. And it had been stolen from her house prior to that night. Oh, my God. And the husband didn't, I guess they didn't realize it was gone? I don't know if it was ever reported missing or, or what, but... Oh, my husband checks that, those things. Right. And I'm sure that maybe he did, too. I mean, the man, like, they, it was obvious that they had their house had been burgled. Like, he had been going in and out of these women's houses. Oh, they're not God. there, right? Oh, my God. That's, that like, terrifying. It is. It is. They also determined that this was the same gun that uh, was in, used in the shootout with Officer Lewis. Police determined that his M.O. was that he stalked women and murdered them during home invasions when they were alone. He entered their homes through open windows and wore gloves as a forensic countermeasure. When inside, he would rape, beat, and kill them, mostly by stabbing or strangulation. And it was speculated that whenever his victims survived the attack, he would stalk them for days in order to know when it was the best time to strike again. So he was a brutal, evil person. But who was he? Like you're asking, you know, what happened to this person? So police began investigating. They did, they, of course, check his criminal record, and they realize that he's been in and out of trouble for years. Before the murders, Harvey Miguel Robinson had frequently gotten in trouble for stealing women's underwear. So he's, he had been in and out of like juvenile, like people's underwear, or like, like go breaking the into their home and stealing their underwear. Oh, not just like from the target. No, from the age of nine to 17, he was arrested numerous times for serious crimes, including burglary. That's when he would go in and steal underwear. And also resisting arrest. They also interviewed some of his school personnel, teachers, counselors, and they found a record that school counselors had determined that he suffered from severe conduct disorder. And many of his teachers and classmates admitted to being afraid of him. Mm. 
He was very he was very impulsive. He he wanted people to be afraid of him. Yeah, he probably got off on it. I can totally see yeah. that kind of kid in class. Yeah, like yeah, watch this. Right, you know, getting off mm-hmm. on the teacher being right. Um, he was also um, he also abused drugs and alcohol, which expounded his impulsive, violent behavior. Oh, yeah. One source said that he that Robinson detested authority and lashed out at those who tried to control him, including the police and his teachers. And as he grew older, it became even more intense. Teachers and students were afraid of him, and his mother tried to get him help. He did see counselors and psychiatrists, but that obviously didn't work. His mother was afraid of him. Oh, that's so, that's so sad. He was born December 6th, 1974. He grew up in a troubled family with an abusive alcoholic father, Harvey Rodriguez Rod- Robinson. Now, about a year before his, the, his mom and dad got married, his dad served time in prison for manslaughter. His dad had beat his mistress to death with his fists. And he got manslaughter. Three years, I think. Whoa. Like, the, is this shit in your DNA? Well, either that or it's well, it's not, if, just... or just watching it. I mean, he idolized his dad. His dad was like a jazz musician or something. Did. And, I mean, he idolized his dad. His dad and his mom and dad were not married for long. They actually divorced by the time he was three. I bet. But the dad was still like a part of his life and the dad's alcoholism and physical and mental abuse towards the mother kind of rubbed off a little bit on on Harvey. Yeah, because he idolizes his dad and then he doesn't know any different. He thinks this is how you treat women. Right. Women are, deserve to be, I mean, he was just a misogynist, right? Harvey, as I said, idolized his father. Right? Yes. (laughs) Harvey's mom was a hardworking mom and she really tried her best to raise her son, but she never had much control over him, even when he was a toddler, like from a the get go. He was a difficult child. He would throw temp. He was known to throw temper tantrums to get his way. And as he got older, she became a bit fearful of him, as I said, he was quick to violence and she probably hit her and pushed yeah, her in line. Yeah. And he did not distinguish between right and wrong. Like, like she's like, this. there's something fundamentally wrong with this child. Um, his mom claimed that she did ask about the bite mark ones and also some about the bloody clothes. And he, he would just make up some excuse and tell her, you know, let it go. Oh, so he was living with her at this yes, time? Yes. Also, he would take her car at night. And I don't know if she likes say, here are my keys or whatever. Probably because not. remember that at, at the reservoir, that city employee identified that blue Dodge yeah. Tempo or Ford Tempo. He was probably taking her car without her permission. Right. And, and that's important because he actually drove a sports car. But that blue Ford Tempo with the right front end damage was seen. And when the police asked about driving his mom's car robinson said oh i don't ever drive my car well my mom's car i did drive it one time to look for a job but that was at such and such a time it was during the day so police ended up catching him in a lie because they found out that one month after burghardt's death robinson was pulled over for a speeding ticket got a speeding ticket he was in his mom's car which was a blue ford tempo that's on the ticket and that was early in the morning hours and then at another time another time not too long after that at 3 a.m he got a ticket for driving his mom's car the wrong way on a one-way street what a shit bag he was taking his mom's car so that he wasn't seen in his car well he was and he knows to be his mom his car could have been loud and might have woken people up in the neighborhood who or knows memorable because maybe right. it was like a red sports car it's, or something it, it was a chrysler laser which i did look at <laughs> like a wow little, it's kind of a sports, yeah, sporty looking exactly car. Yeah. yeah, there was, uh, it was kind of like a, 
an eclipse. Do you remember the eclipses? Yes, Mitsubishi. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, they they look like the same car. Yeah. Okay. It's like right. just uh-huh. off a you know how lots of cars look the same. In the more early morning hours, when most people are sleeping and think they are safe and secure, he was prowling the neighborhood and the neighborhood. So it was actually his neighborhood. He grew up in the neighborhood that he killed the three women in, and he grew up a few years before in the area, like right in the same area as Fortney, which was four miles away. So he was going to places he knew. He knew. He was prowling his area. Yes. He stalked women all of the same height and build. And then even the pictures that I saw of some of them, they all resembled each other. Oh, that's so scary. Mm. I mean, I've been followed home before, and that was some scary shit. Yeah. And my daddy wasn't home, but my mom would kill somebody, yeah. so. <laughs> when they were checking on his whereabouts around the times of each crime, now remember there was like 10 months between one and then eight months between another, they realized that he was in juvenile, he was in juvenile detention during one span and then at St. Gabe's Hall during another span. Now, St. Gabriel's Hall, I actually looked it up, is a residential and community treatment center for boys ages 9 to 18 or 10 to 18. Mm -hmm. And the center accepts court-ordered as well as voluntary residents. And these are its objectives. So it's like a a program. It's like a program, yes. To to prevent further involvement of youth in the juvenile justice system. To help youth be accountable for their actions, develop victim empathy, and take greater responsibility for the quality of life in their family and community. To develop measurable competencies that help youth become more responsible and productive members of their communities. This did not work for Robinson. No, this is a sociopath. There is no empathy. Yeah, he he probably should have never gotten into this program. He's not a candidate for me. detrimental to the other people there. Right, so what the police realized is if you took away the times that he was incarcerated or the time that he was in this um, resident center, that the killings actually took place in a much shorter period. They used that, um, they used that timeline, as a matter of fact, to try all three murders at the same time. So remember when we did the Paul Levitt case in New York, um, New, Jer- New Mexico, and they and he got an appeal because the, the trial should have been severed. Uh-huh. Well, they're saying that the time period was much shorter because if you look at the time that he was out, they were only within two weeks to a month of each other. It's like a spree. Yes. So if he, and just think, if he wouldn't have been in these detention centers, then it would have been more, more, right. More people would have been killed. Or maybe he would have been caught sooner. Maybe. The prosecution won the article, the argument. And of course, all three murders are going to be tried in one trial. I'm surprised he wasn't in that facility, like bragging. He probably was. All right. So here's a staff evaluation of a staff evaluation (laughs) of Robinson's progress from St. Gabriel's Hall. It's not at all shining. Harvey Miguel Robinson's adjustment was poor and there had not been a great deal of improvement throughout his stay. He is usually manipulative and slow to cooperate. His peer relations are typically unsatisfactory. In addition, he absconded, and that means escaped, from the institution. He stole a staff member's wallet with $200 in it, and he violated a variety of rules and regulations, including stealing clothes from other residents. So I bet when he was out, they were like, "Woo, he's thank gone. God he's gone. And yes. then I wouldn't be surprised if they heard, because you know what I'm talking about, when something's happening and then they're like, oh, I bet it was that crazy son of a bitch we had in here the other day. Yeah. Or, you know, or, like, or when they did arrest him, they were like, see, right. I knew it. Robinson was arrested on July 31st, 1993, when he was 18 years old. He was charged with the following. So for Sam, Sam Cowley, he was charged with three counts of burglary and related offenses, two counts of attempted homicide. One count of rape and related offenses, multiple counts of aggravated indecent assault, and one count of carrying a firearm with, without a license. 
For Smoyer, the 15-year-old, he was charged with criminal homicide, kidnapping, rape, aggravated indecent assault, and indecent assault. For Joan Burghardt, he was charged with criminal homicide, burglary, criminal trespass, rape, and aggravated indecent assault. And for Fortney, he was charged with criminal homicide, burglary, criminal trespass, rape, aggravated indecent assault, and indecent insult, assault. Now, the five-year-old. Yeah. Um, so they never named the mom or the five-year-old. So I'm just wondering if it's one of those things where to prevent further trauma, they just kind of like had him plead to that because they know that he stalked the mom. Like he told them that, yeah, I stalked the mom. I, the mom was a victim. Like, I'm just wondering if for it's some reason they didn't count survived. that. She did. She was left for dead, but she survived. So I'm just wondering if I, I never read where they tried that case at all. And it's always just like a paragraph in anything, even the Supreme Court decision. Huh. So okay. it's kind That's of like weird. when you have a minor like that, they don't they try to prevent victim further victimization by. Right. But you would think that would really solidify his ass and going to jail right. or where. Right. And it's, and, you know, they had DNA evidence and it could have been just something he plead to. Yeah, maybe. So I don't know. On February 28th, 1994, he pled guilty to burglary, attempted criminal homicide, and carrying without a permit. These were the charges in the Sam Callie case. Of course, he pled because she lived to tell her story. So her on the stand, what, you know, we want to prevent that at all costs. Mm -hmm. So we're going to just cop a plea to this. All right. However, the prosecutor decided to try the other three murders together in one trial, and they called Sam Kelly as a witness. Good for them. Which is going to come back as an appeal later. Ugh. This was a blow to his defense, and on November 19, 1994, at 19 years old, he was found guilty of three first-degree murders and all other offenses relating to Burghardt, Schmoyer, and Fortney. In the sentencing phase, the jury found aggravating circumstances in each case. So, remember, aggravating circumstances, that makes it even worse and that's what you need to have to go to have the death penalty the killings were committed during felonies he had numerous prior felonies even as a juvenile he was convicted of another murder he wasn't actually convicted he was um he they pled he pled to the sam actually no he was this one actually gets thrown out robinson was convicted of another murder that one was thrown out by a higher court because when he was in the sentencing phase he hadn't been convicted of another murder like he was tried for all three mm-hmm. I'm, i know i'm not making any sense but they threw that one out they Maybe also was the five-year-old no because she didn't die okay yeah yeah you're right Torture was used. They determined that torture was used in all the attacks. So he would be considered depraved, I would say. But, you know, right around this time, 1994, and then now, like, I don't, obviously, I don't know yet what he gets. But, like, if he was sentenced to death, now he would get a new sentencing hearing because he was only 18. Okay, so we're going to get to that. Well, nope, he was 18. So if he was under the age of 18. Okay, so we're going to get to that. Okay, so he's sentenced to death for all three murders. And, of course, you get your appeals. The appeals began immediately. So the high court ended up dismissing Robinson's death sentence for the first murder, Burghardt's murder, because he was only 17 when the crime that was committed. That's such fucking horseshit. All right. He was later sentenced. So it was, it was resentencing. The Supreme Court said, okay, yes, he was found guilty. We just need a resentencing trial. He was later sentenced to life in prison for this murder. But he's automatically, if his ass is still alive, he automatically gets a resentencing trial now. Automatically, because of the Supreme Court. All right. In a 2010 appeal, he was granted a new sentence hearing for the Schmoyer case. That was a 15-year-old because he was afraid of getting another possible death sentence. He just agreed to waive his appeal rights in the Schmoyer case in exchange for a life sentence. 
So they were going to resentence him. They were going to do another resentencing hearing for Schmoyer, which he could have still gotten the death penalty. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know what? I'll just give up all my rights to appeal in this case. Just give me life. Yeah, but wait till those prisoners find out you raped a five-year-old. His attorneys filed an appeal in the Fortney case, and they were chastised for wasting the court's time with worthless claims because they presented over 60 issues for the higher court to consider. Now, they kind of like said, you're a dumbass because she says, appears the present counsel for appellant has made a deliberate attempt to overwhelm the court. Mm -hmm. She further stated that the majority of the claims had already been rejected by the court and many others were gross misrepresentations of the criminal trial. She then stated that when higher courts see more than 10 or 12 claims for appeal, then those then the validity of any of those claims is in question because they're often hollow and are just determined to take up the court's time. Just to piss them off. Yeah, she's saying that the fewer issues that you have, the more likely you are to be taken seriously. That makes, I see that. Yeah. Um, some of the issues that were brought up in his appeal included severance of the trial. So he believes that he shouldn't have been tried for all three at the same time. He's saying the MO, and then they actually disregarded that because the MO was similar in all cases. Mm-hmm. He also, and remember there are 60, I'm just naming a few. He also said that the jury um, saw inflammatory photos, but they, the court determined they only saw them 20 seconds at the first trial and 10 seconds at the resentencing. So that's not long enough. They also, he also said that you have to show those pictures. You have to. And that's what the prosecution said. You have to show it to show MO. I mean, it's more inflammatory to the family members or the loved ones that you. And, and in some of them, like they didn't show full on pictures, like they would show the Chevron pattern on Schmoyer's cheek. Right. Or they would show the ring, the, the ring imprint on his, on, on the, um, uh, Fortney's face. Right. All right. Then he, the, then he claimed that Sam allowing Sam Kelly to testify was inflammatory and her case was not related. And again, the high court threw that out. That was all the same MO. She lived to tell the tale that the other three women weren't. So they, she was a witness in that. It's not like they're bringing up past acts that they can't bring up. This is a past act that is relevant, not a separate. Right. It's all in the years ago. He robbed a bank. And the fact that he was caught by breaking in and doing that in her house, in her house. that was that yeah. made it allowable. Uh, anyway, the, the on in the end on December two in December two thousand thirteen, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court found those claims unwarranted, unwarranted, unwarranted. Yeah, and they upheld Robinson's death penalty and Fortney's murder. Good for them. So his current sentence, he has one death sentence, two life sentences, plus ninety seven years for rape. He still has one death penalty, but as we know from your episode last week, when you told us about Gary Heidnick, mm-hmm. Gary Heidnick was the last person to be executed yep. in the state of Pennsylvania. Now, because Pennsylvania no longer does execute their prisoners for some reason, many prosecutors refuse to try anyone on the death penalty for numerous reasons because of the costs associated with trial, the allowable appeals, the cost of housing someone on death row mm-hmm. because it is different. Not to mention the lack of execution. So, you know, they typically don't go for the death penalty anymore. Hmm. It's, it, what's the point? Yeah. According to one source, a judge asked Robinson to consider donating his brain to science because one of Robinson's appeals was that he had brain damage. Well, there was never any documented report, medical report at any time. He tried to say, well, my IQ dropped from 126 to 100. But if you 
skip school a lot and you don't go to school it's and you don't focus on your IQ test, it's going to go down. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, 100 is an average human being. Yeah. 126 is on the top of, of high average. Anyway, judge is like, you know, if you have brain damage, it would be interesting. Consider donating your brain to science so we can research a little bit further about this. And he said, oh, well, I'll consider it if it's allowed by my religion. Because now, apparently, since his incarceration, he is now converted to Islam. They don't want him. <laughs> I don't think anyone wants to claim him. Robinson is one of the five youngest serial killers in America, and he is the first serial killer in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And I looked it up. I don't think they have another one. If they do, I didn't find it. Wow. So, so yeah, that, my dear, is the story of Harvey Miguel Robinson. Creeped me out. He's like a predator, like a shark. Oh, definitely. Like he's swimming around at night when other people are sleeping. Uh, evil very evil evil. and he looks evil in his pictures and he even said something you know i he's on death row in prison like Mm -hmm. i I, he's still sitting there um if i'm not i'm pretty sure he's still sitting on death row i could be wrong they might have commuted all of his sentences to life sentences but i don't think so not 100 percent certain hey if i'm wrong email us okay yes let us know what's our email address again (laughs) (laughs) a true crime podcast at gmail.com okay thank you email us (laughs) Tell us what you think. Yeah. Uh, all right. So thanks so much for listening to this week's murder. We appreciate sharing our passion with you and we thank you for your support. If you'd like to support us even further, please consider subscribing to our podcast and giving us a five-star rating with a comment. Your subscription and ratings are essential to our success. You can do this on your favorite platform. For more information and links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. We are so grateful to spend our time together and share our murderous stories. Thank you so much for your support. Please recommend It Wasn't Me to your true crime-loving friends and family. Also, thank you to our Patreon supporters. You are the extra. You too can become one of our beloved patrons by signing up at patreon.com forward slash it wasn't me pod thanks again guys and remember it it wasn't wasn't me. me